Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Bearded Things. I'm one of your bearded hosts. My name is Chris, and I'm here with my buddy Tyler. Tyler, how are you? I am good. Um, the 49ers won, so that was a nice uh, ending to my Sunday, which otherwise was rather uneventful and stupid, working all day and been working all week and dealing with more fun people that like to come out and walk into my store and not wear masks or just be rude, jerky assholes. Yeah, just wear the damn mask, people. It's not that bad. I'm honestly like, I'm tired of like talking about it all the time. It's like when people come in, I was like, do you have a mask? No. Okay. Thanks. Like, <laughs> get everyone sick. Way to be an asshole. So I'm waiting for the corporate complaints to come in because I've been very sassy with a lot of people, especially this past week. So yay. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fine. I think those people deserve that. Yeah, I'm not too worried about it. I mean, I, I'm technically upholding the company policy. So whatever. Yeah. Fight the power. Well, not not really. I guess you're the power. So <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to be. Yeah, they're trying to fight the power. At least they think they're fighting the power. We'll see. Just don't fight it so hard that your foot breaks. Oh, too soon. <laughs> I believe that is a reference to Uncle Joe, the vice president elect, who broke his foot today playing with his pupper. He's the president elect, and yes. Oh yeah, sorry. But uh, yeah, <laughs> this kind of goes into, so if you go back a couple of episodes, we were talking about the uh, the 20 year curse on the presidency. We talked about how uh, 20 years ago from this election, uh, somebody threw a live grenade at George W. Bush. <laughs> mm-hmm. For whatever reason, it did not go off, although it should have. 20 years before that, you had uh, the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan. 20 years before that, you had the successful assassination of John F. Kennedy. This year, the president-elect, according to the curse, uh, doesn't have a good time. According to yeah. the curse, he doesn't make it to the end of his presidency. So is a broken that's, foot yeah. the sign of things to come? Hopefully that's the worst of it, and the broken foot is the curse, and that's it. Yeah, that'd be nice. If Like a potential case of like gangrene that they treat, and then everything's Yeah, something fine. that's easily treatable and everything's good. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd be happy with that. And then the curse can be broken. But we, we shall see. We don't know. Um, I think if you go back, we actually break it down all the way back to, I believe it was like the 1820s. Uh, yeah. The, that's that's how, yeah, that's how far back this curse has uh, been in power. And yeah, every 20 years, something happens. Yeah, that was actually, I think it was one of our first episodes, too. Wasn't it like episode like two or three? Yeah, it was really early in the show, so it's probably not that great, but it, it, the message <laughs> is there. Yeah, the quality is there. <laughs> I mean, not that this episode's going to be any better, but right. it won't be yeah. worse. I'll tell you yeah. that. <laughs> We're consistently mediocre. <laughs> Bam, right in the bottom of the middle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so what are you covering this week, good sir? I am covering something called the Allagash incident, which is um, an alien abduction. Ooh, spooky. Yeah, and it was good because uh, we talked about this off air and I'll share it with our lovely listeners that uh, I've been kind of in a funk the last couple of days. And so I wanted to bring everyone down and talk about a really sad story. <laughs> and then this morning or today when I got home from work, not this morning, I was proofreading my script and I read the first paragraph and I was like, what the fuck is this? Cause I don't remember reading this. I was completely convinced that I was doing a completely different topic until I got home today. And this is what I'm covering. So the script's written. So if it wasn't me, thank you ghostwriter. What's interesting. So you did like a ghost writing type thing where you uh, wrote a different script than the one you yeah. intended. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. I woke up yesterday with a strange scratch on my face that I can't uh, explain. 
Interesting. Yeah. I mean, granted, I live with four cats, so there could be something to do with that. (laughs) Or Frank's trying to claw his way out. Other side. So we might be going the long way out of my face. And if uh, you're not sure who Frank is, a couple months back, I had a, a dental procedure where they ripped out my chunk of my jaw replaced it with uh, bone fragments from a cadaver and i named that cadaver frank so he lives in my face i actually just went to the dentist and they did mris to make sure everything's good everything's good frank my body has absorbed frank so i am one with frank or frank is one with you i don't know (laughs) it goes both ways sometimes hey oh like i'm really thirsty right now and i don't know if it's me or frank you should just walk around uh, like I am one with Frank. Frank is one with me, <laughs> <laughs> and just pretend like you're blind and be Donnie Yen and Rogue One. And I wish start I was Donnie killing stormtroopers. Donnie Yen yeah, is he's so kind awesome. of awesome. Really? Yeah. I love- so anyway, tonight I will be covering uh, Jacques Saint Germain or the Vampire of New Orleans or New Orleans, depending on I think where you, you are. Um, mispronounced Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman is the all time greatest vampire he because yeah. what happened was he is an actual vampire <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> <laughs> him keanu reeves and kate blanchett are just these timeless people mm-hmm. can't prove any of it but i can't disprove it either is kate blanchett the one that was the elf in lord of the rings yes. or is that okay i always get her and kate beckinsale confused like she hasn't aged at all same with gary oldman hasn't aged yeah exactly they're they're uh, immortals and they're coming for our souls and they're making us comfortable with their presence by being in movies. Interesting. That's my theory. That's a good theory. Thank you. So any other business or anything <laughs> uh, before we go off on too many tangents at the start of the show? <laughs> I don't think so. I think we're good. I think I went first last time, correct? So you're up. I do believe so. All right. So like I said, I'm doing Jacques St. Germain or the vampire of New Orleans vampire lore there's a lot most of what we quote know today comes from tv shows movies books or movies based on books they sparkle right they do sparkle in the sunlight because they don't burn uh they also all believe in like wild sex orgies if you're watching true blood it's a big (laughs) convoluted thing behind all the fiction there is a lore that dates back centuries even in the realm of nonfiction, yet still more than likely fiction there are different tales and lore This is one of those tales, or this could all be entirely true. It's up to you, dear bearded friend, to decide. Please take as many grains of our cruelty-free, free-range organic sea salt as needed, or dive right into the mystery. To quote the vampire Lestat, I'm going to give you a choice that I never had. For everybody who's younger than like 30, Vampire Lestat is from uh, the Anne Rice series of Interview with a Vampire. (laughs) Imagine this. It's the 1700s, France. You're invited to a dinner party filled with the most prestigious guests. You show up to a lavish mansion and the room is bursting with conversation. A man walks in. He speaks in a way which you've never heard before. His eyes lock you in. He tells you of events that happened 100 years ago with such detail you could swear he was there. This man is Comte Saint-Germain. He mysteriously came on the scene in France in the 1700s. Though records suggest he may have been alive a long before that. Some legends even state during the time of Christ. French historian and philosopher Voltaire, King Louis XV, and Italian writer and adventurer Casanova all claim to have known him. Voltaire even said, he is a man who knows everything and who never dies. 
He never seemed to age. He is said to have spoken six languages, was a brilliant artist, could play the violin effortlessly, which is considered to be one of the most difficult instruments in the world, and allegedly grew diamonds. I wasn't there. I can't vouch for that. But Comte Saint-Germain was an alchemist and a very accomplished one at that, which means he worked with chemicals to try and turn metal into gold. He could create beautiful jewels out of small stones and was in search of the fabled, quote, elixir of life, which may explain why he was so rich. He even trained other alchemists, including one under Marie Antoinette's rule. At her execution, the alchemist supposedly saw Comte Saint-Germain. This was years after he was believed to have, quote, died. I would like to point out that this alchemist was beheaded, so how we know what she saw seems a bit more on the legend side of the story. <laughs> he wrote a book discussing his work with alchemy and symbols, but to this day, some parts of it have yet to be decoded. He began traveling all over Europe, throwing magnificent parties. Guests claimed that he never ate a bite of food, and his guests marveled at his stories. He eventually found himself in Germany, where he lived in a castle as a confidant to Prince Hesse. He has one strange record of his death, which was written by a priest under the king's orders. He supposedly died in 1784, but most accounts of the people that knew him believed he headed west to continue his mysterious adventures. This is, however, the end of, quote, Comte de Saint-Germain, and where the story takes a turn for the strange. Around 200 years after the death of Comte de Saint-Germain, somewhere in the 1970s, an immigrant from the south of France named Jacques Saint-Germain came to New Orleans and moved into an old two-story home off Royal Street. He was known for his knowledge, charming wit, and seemingly ageless presence. He spoke of events that happened hundreds of years in the past with great detail. He threw lavish parties with the finest foods, entertainment, and most prestigious guests, but guests never saw him eat a bite of food. Not long after he had taken up residence in New Orleans, things got really creepy really quickly. There's a tale told by many vampire enthusiasts in the Big Easy that one night Jacques had a lady over to his home. He had invited her over to a party with many up-and-comers and elites in New Orleans. After a while, he asked her up to the balcony for some, quote, immortal alone time <laughs> and attempted to bite her neck. She freaked out and was able to distract him only to escape the only way she could. She jumped from the balcony onto the crowded pavement below. The story says that she was completely terrified and had drops of blood trickling down her neck. People quickly surrounded her and the police were there within a few minutes. When the police investigated the crime and went to Jacques' home to investigate, what they found made the situation even more odd. According to reports, they found clothes from all different time periods stained in blood. There was absolutely no food, not even utensils in the house. There were many bottles of what seemed to be red wine, but were mixed with human blood upon further testing. Whoa. What they didn't find was Jacques Saint-Germain, who never did return. New Orleans is home to all sorts of life. There's a very prominent vampire culture there. It's the voodoo capital of the world, home of some of the most amazing jazz and blues and fantastic eats. Strange travelers there are very common and just a part of the big easy lifestyle. One group is the traveling kids. Essentially, teenagers who've run away or just out on their own, who travel in packs and roam the streets, kind of like uh, right after the Depression in the United States, you had the hobos kind of going around. They'd work a day job, hop on a train, and mm -hmm. go to the next town. Essentially, Tell their fancy stories. Yeah, essentially the teenage version of that. So here we are at Mardi Gras 2004. 
A few of these kids were hanging out in Jackson Square in the French Quarter. They see a man who doesn't quite fit in. He's hanging out with tourists, but something stood out. He would just stand there for hours, never sitting, never getting tired, and always talking to tourists, never the locals. One of the kids would later say in an interview for the History Channel, quote, he looked like he was in his 40s or 50s, but there was an air about him that felt like he was in his 90s, kind of like I've seen it all, I've done it all kind of a vibe. He was a short man dressed to the nine. Sometimes he would have a trench coat. He had on this expensive looking tie chain. I mean, dressed better than typical gentlemen by today's standards for sure. He was very pale and would tell very antiquated stories about traveling to Egypt before airplanes in a caravan or or riding camels. He would invite certain girls back to his place. He was like a really well-to-do creep. He just felt very lonely. They were able to track down a girl who anonymously admitted going home with this man who called himself Jack. She claimed that after listening to a few more of his stories, they began to drink wine as the night went on. His demeanor began to change. He started getting really creepy and weird. She immediately ran out of his place. There have been several sightings of a man that fits this description seen around New Orleans as recently as last summer by tourists who claimed that a very short, odd man overdressed for the area who would ask tourists for a lighter. The tourist lit a cigarette and began to walk away. After a few steps, he got a really creepy gut feeling and stopped. He turned around towards the stranger, and he was gone. There was nowhere to hide. There was nowhere to run. He was just gone. I personally haven't made it to New Orleans yet, so to be 100% honest, I have my doubts about the legend of Jacques St. Germain, but I really think there could be something to it. The descriptions match over several centuries to a very odd degree. If you, dear bearded friend, have had an experience with St. Germain, we would love to hear it and please let us know. And that is the story of Jacques St. Germain, and I just want to add that New Orleans has a very vibrant and rich vampire subculture, and in no way did I mean to disrespect anything I said. It's a culture I don't know much about. So please, any vamps that may listen to this, please excuse my ignorance and seriously reach out. I have a ton of questions I'd like to ask you about. Nice. That was awesome. That was very informative and kind of crazy that, yeah, someone like can span those, you know, the years and like all those like people that are famous and like well-documented people in history that say they claim they know him is pretty cool. Yeah, and there is a very famous painting of Comte Saint-Germain, the original one from the 1700s. And the people who have seen this man around New Orleans can identify him as the guy that they saw. Oh. So I don't know what to make of this. It's kind of, uh, you know, if it looks like a duck, if it sounds like a duck, it might be the vampire Jacques (laughs) Saint-Germain. Exactly. So if anyone wants to sponsor us, Chris and I would love to take a trip to New Orleans and try to figure this out ourselves. So yeah, I'm, I am totally down. Um, I hear it will make that sacrifice. I hear it's, it can get a little sketchy. There are a lot of protections in place uh, in that area for people like St. Germain, mm-hmm. but uh, I think, uh, I think I'm down. Let's do it. Yeah. I watched the YouTube video. We can make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome, man. Thank you. Uh, and now before we get into banter with the Beersleys and my topic, we're going to take a quick commercial break and we're back. And now it's time to get into our banter with the Beersleys. So what is banter with the Beersleys? 
Andrew with the Beersleys is our fun, unscripted, off-the-cuff conversation where you, the listener, submit a topic and we talk about it on the air. It can either be a question you're interested in, uh, something about our ourselves, and we kind of just have fun, go back and forth, talk about things, and um, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it can literally be anything from the socioeconomic standings of the colonies to like our favorite recipes for Thanksgiving. Anything at all. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah. So what do we have today, good sir? So today we have a listener submitted question from our friend Marcy in Ohio. And she asks, what are some of your guys' superstitions? (laughs) (laughs) I've always been told that there's like two types of very superstitious people, actors and athletes. And I think we kind of cover that gambit there. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So uh, what do you got? (laughs) Because I know you got them. I have a ton. I am, I have pretty rampant OCD. Um, so I have I, not to the point where like, if I don't, you know, like if I step on a crack, I'm going to die or something. It's not that bad, but I have a lot of things where like, I have to do them in a specific order. And so I have some of those superstitions. Um, when I coached football, I coached football for about nine years and a couple of the years we were really good. And when we would win, we would not wash our like, our polos, like our, our, our coaching uniforms. And so one year we were undefeated. We went um, 10 and 0 in the regular season, made it, made a, a run in the playoffs. And I'm pretty sure like that last, like, you know, the, after the 10 and 0 game, like I could take my shirt off and just like stand it up. <laughs> uh, it was not pretty. It was not fun. I'm a firm believer in like knocking on wood. Um, I probably have a ton more that if I sat and like, think about like throughout the day, like, I know people have told me that I'm like overly superstitious. Uh, I'm a big fan of, or a big believer in like jinxes, like don't jinx it or like reverse jinxes. Um, when the Braves were making their run in the playoffs, <laughs> I, I watched the first game and they did well. And then I started watching the second game and they lost. And then I didn't watch the rest of the series because they won the next game. And I didn't watch it. So I didn't watch the rest of the series until game seven. I flipped it on like halfway through the game. And I'm like, oh, they're doing okay. And then the fucking Dodgers came back and won game seven. And I'm I'm convinced I ruined it. Um, so just kind of weird things like that. Um, I know it's probably nonsensical, but in my head, it makes sense that if I don't do those things that, you know, the teams are going to do well or they're not going to do well if I watch them. And Yeah, there was, uh, I, f- I forget who the guy was and, and or his team. I can't remember that right now. But there was this guy, his team was uh, in the playoffs, I think, for the NFL and they started losing. So he's like, he sat there. He had like, he saved all year long to get one ticket to go to this game. He had like the 50 yard line, like third mm-hmm. row. And he's like, I know what I have to do. So he left. Yep. And as he's walking out, security guy stops. I'm like, dude, they're coming back. You need to get in there. And he's like, no, no, I don't. Yep. This is for the team. And they ended up winning. And then his team, I, I want to look it up. I can't remember right now. I'm pretty sure it was the... It was the Chiefs fan who left when yes. they were losing by like a ton when they were playing the Texans and they were losing like 24 to nothing. And he's like, I'm out. And he left and they ended up coming back and winning. Yeah. And then the team got wind of it. So they sent him all kinds of like tchotchkes and crap. It's like a thank you kind of a, like having fun with yep. it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, it's a real thing. It, it's it's legit. Um, if I'm watching a Raider game and they're winning, if I continue to watch it, they're going to lose. But if they're winning and I turn it off around the halftime, They'll keep the, the lead. 
I didn't oh, watch okay, it today, yeah. so that that's I kind of take explains it. why they lost forty six to three or something like that. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's my bad, and I'm very sorry to the Los Angeles Oakland Raiders of Las Vegas. I will do better. We can do this as a team, <laughs> and I'd like to apologize. But yeah, that that's a legit superstition. Yeah, um, I it's driving me nuts because I know I have so many, <laughs> and I know like people are gonna listen to this and be like, "What about this? You always talk about this. What about that?" And I'm gonna feel stupid, and we're gonna have to have a follow up question to this. But yeah, that's why I'm kind of stalling right now, so I can like, <laughs> think of all of mine. <laughs> uh, I know I like the big ones I have that are like constant. So uh, if I have to wake up at say eight tomorrow, right? I have to get up at either a division. No, it's a division of five. So if I wake up at like 801, I have to stay in bed till 805 and then I can get up or like 810, 815. I can't get mm. up at like 812, 813. Like, no, if I got to go pee, I'm going to wet myself. Well, that's what the fates wanted because I need to wait <laughs> to 815. <laughs> yeah, totally. Because who knows what could happen if I got out too early? Just throw off everything. Mm. That's true. So yeah, uh, I get out of bed increments five regardless. Um, I'm pretty sure that's OCD because I have the same, not the same thing, but I'll tell it after you go. I'll, I'll tell a quick story okay. about that. Another big one I have is anytime I'm doing any sort of work in front of a crowd, this started doing, I started doing this back when we played football. When we're going out to the field from the field house, I would have to smack the, uh, the doorway before we like left to go out to the field. And uh, I still do that today. If I'm performing anywhere, if I'm doing a magic show somewhere, uh, I'll smack the dressing room door before I walk out to the stage. Anything, anywhere I go. If there's a stage and I'm going to be on it, I have to touch a doorway leading mm. leading to the stage. So that's like a, a really big one for me. I uh, also have a pair of lucky socks mm -hmm. that I wear for any important engagement. And uh, yeah, same thing back in high school. I never wash my jersey. Mm-hmm. I think those are the the really really big ones. Yeah, uh, similar to your like touching a doorway thing. Um, if I'm walking and there's like a pole, like a light pole, or like at Costco they used to have those like little like plastic dividers, I like knock on those twice when I walk by. I don't know why. It's just something weird. I just I have a thing with touching things when I'm out, which is really bad because we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and now it's like don't touch that. And I used to walk around touching everything. So, um, but also your story about the you know waking up in dividends of five or whatever it reminds me i still do it now every now and then but it's not really a superstition it's just a compulsion like part of my ocd is when i would have conversations with people if their sentence didn't end in a derivative of five like five ten fifteen words i would add words in my head and so the whole time I'm talking to someone, I'm adding words to their sentence and counting on my fingers, like on the side of my hip. I would like one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. Um, that's just nuts. It, it drove me nuts. Yeah. Like it. Yeah. I don't think I that's had, superstition. I think that's just legit OCD. <laughs> that's, yeah. It just reminded me of that. But yeah, it's like, it was when I had some severely unchecked OCD. I still have some pretty bad unchecked OCD, but it's not as bad as that was, but it reminded me of that. So the more, you know, <laughs> Oversharing on the podcast, just a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I think those are like my big superstitious things. Uh, if I'm very nervous, I have very bad stage fright, uh, like crippling stage fright. So, although I'm not Catholic, I find uh, I'll do the sign of the cross just because I see it done in movies. <laughs> it works for them. It does. So it's kind of like a subconscious thing. So it's for me. Mm. It's like my good luck move mm. that helps. 
But uh, I think my those... good luck move is to cross my arms and lean against the door and be like, "Sup, ladies." <laughs> How to strike out with Tyler? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those those are my big ones. I don't really do like I know a, a, I can think of on off the top of my head a bunch of people who do that, like driving in a tunnel, honk the horn, or hold oh, your breath. I hold my breath. Yeah, when I drive through a tunnel. Yeah, I don't do that. Which sucks when I was in Boston because there's a really long tunnel that goes <laughs> under like the, the harbor and I almost died. Mine was the Lincoln <laughs> Tunnel in New York. That's when I yep. found out I'm claustrophobic. Yeah. That yeah, was a that very is. long airless tunnel. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if it's, it's borderline superstitious, but it's more of a, a, I don't know. I don't know what this is. Maybe you guys can help me figure this out. I know we got some people who understand psychology way more than I do. Anytime I like to travel, I travel somewhere far. Like if I have to take a plane somewhere, what I like to do is pick up a copy of any book by Robert Frost. Hmm. And I, I have a collection of Robert Frost books from all over the North America uh, that I have. I don't know why. It just kind of brings me comfort. You're uh, borderline hoarding. Kind of, but it's just Robert Frost. And I don't travel that much, so it's kind of like that's my personal keeps. I actually enjoy reading yeah. Robert Frost. No, so, that's cool. I mean, it's like a sort of like a tradition. I think it would fall under a, tra a traditional, it's type a traditional thing. Like, thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's your traveling tradition. When I first flew across the country on an airplane, I bought, um, the Da Vinci code by what's his face. Dan Brown, Dan Brown. Yeah. So then like the next three times I flew after that, I bought like his sequel books just because I was like, Oh, I read this the one time. So it was like, this is back before we could like have phones and stuff on the, the plane or we could play games on the seat in front of us. We had to read and do weird stuff to pass the time. Um, but yeah, I think it's I, think it's, I would say it's more like a tradition thing. Like it's not, I mean, you haven't crashed, so maybe it is a superstition. You have to get everything from Robert Frost. I think at this point it kind of is. Yeah. Uh, that's <laughs> another doorway I have to touch if I'm going on a flight and you have to like, you know, you walk through that little hangar thing into the, the doorway mm -hmm. of the jet. Mm -hmm. I have to touch the airplane, the outside of the plane. Oh, nice. I'm sure the FAA people who are listening to yeah. this right now. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> you just leaving your fingerprints, you know, in case you get sucked out of the plane, people know you were there. Exactly. Watch that little bit of oil that transferred over is going to be the thing that sets it off one day. Yeah, who knows? Not if I have my Robert Frost book. Exactly. It'll counteract what would happen then. Exactly. The plane would just stop and fall out of the sky like a cartoon. <laughs> Okay, I think we're log past way, superstitions. Way yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I'm trying to think like spooky stuff. Like when I go into like investigate or explore cemeteries, I don't really do anything. Um, I do believe this is a superstition. If you're in a theater and you say the name of the Scottish play by Shakespeare, there's a a few things you're supposed to do, like spin around in a circle and then spit over your shoulder, um, or go outside and do this circle thing. They believe that is a cursed thing so hmm. if you say the name you have to go and do something to rid the the curse if i spill salt i throw it over my shoulder I, how, how do people spill salt these days i don't think i've ever spilled watch tonight i'm gonna spill this yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like i mean not necessarily if i spill salt but like if i'm shaking it in the pan or like i'm putting it like on food that i'm making and i get it like all over the place or like if the cap falls off or something like that and it just gets everywhere then I scoop all that into like my hand and I throw it over my shoulder. But then you're at home and you have to clean all that. I know, but it's still, <laughs> it's weird. Superstitions don't make sense. Okay. That I, that's <laughs> true. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think those, those are my superstitions. Yeah. My too. I hope that answered your question. <laughs> and uh, then Marcy. some, yeah. 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 <laughs> and we, you just learned so much about it. A little <laughs> peek behind the curtain. Again. Yeah. We have serious issues. 
<laughs> There's a reason we do a strange podcast. Yes. <laughs> All right. Now that uh, we've answered Marcy's questions, it's time for your segment, sir. Are you ready? I am ready. This is going to be an adventure for all of us. Cause like I said, <laughs> brand new topic to me. So this is going to be awesome. <laughs> all right. So as I mentioned for today's episode, uh, I was going to do something kind of sad and depressing, but, uh, my subconscious pulled me out of that. So we're going back to our paranormal roots a little bit and I'm covering the Allagash incident or the Allagash abduction. The Allagash incident takes place in, you guessed it, Allagash, Maine. And the event takes place in August of 1976, and it involves four men. Twin brothers, Jack and Jim Weiner. Side note, I don't know if it's pronounced Weiner or Weiner, but for the sake of not giggling like a little schoolgirl every time I say the name, I'm going to go with Weiner. The other two men were Chuck Rack and Charlie Fultz. The four men were all students at the Massachusetts College of Art and Design and were going on one last trip before having to go back to school. They decided to go canoeing and hiking in the Allagash Wilderness Waterway in Maine. On August 17th, the men arrived at their makeshift campsite and did what most men would do in this situation and cracked open a few beers. They did some canoeing and basically enjoyed their time away from civilization and everything. On the second night, one of the twin brothers, Jim, noticed a weird, very bright light in the sky that appeared for nearly 30 seconds and then disappeared. Another member of the group, Chuck, also claimed to have seen the light and the next day, they reported to a park ranger that they happened to run into. The park ranger very calmly and logically explained that it was a spotlight being used to announce a grand opening of a hardware store in the nearby town of Millinocket. The town of Millinocket, by the way, is about 75 miles away. And the time the men saw the light was roughly around 9 p.m. So I kind of think the park ranger is full of shit. But the men go about their day and they enjoy the rest of their, their day. And then two nights later, on August 20th, they have another experience. On the said night of August 20th, the four men set up a campfire, and I presume they have a short conversation on whether or not one of them wants more, and another is like, some more what? We haven't eaten. And they end up throwing back a couple beers, and they head out to the nearby lake to do some night fishing. While on the lake, the men all claim to have seen a bright light in the sky, just like a couple nights prior. This time, however, the light is changing colors. It's sort of melting from a white to a red to a green. This is definitely not a spotlight for a grand opening of a hardware store. And one of the men, Charlie, gets the bright idea to signal SOS to the light using his flashlight. No one is sure why he does this, but friends say that Charlie is a former Navy veteran and might just wanted to see if the object would communicate. Not surprising, the bright light shot out a light beam down onto the water near the men. To me, this is a sign that whatever this thing is, it wanted to help since our guy Charlie signaled that he needed help. Well, the, the men are not SMRT smart like me, so they freak out and they start paddling away as fast as they possibly can. The mysterious light starts to follow them as they try to frantically get to shore. I have to say kudos to this mystery light because if I was trying to help people who are presumably stuck on the lake at night and they start to run away, I'd be super pissed and just leave and say, fuck these guys. I would anyway. start chasing them like even faster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was trying to help you out and you run away, jerks. Get back here and let me save you. <laughs> let me be a hero. <laughs> Anyways, uh, the men are paddling for their lives and suddenly they aren't. They're done. They're back on the shore. They're laying around the campfire and they're kind of trying to find their bearings. And they notice that the bright light in the, is in the sky, but it's slowly fading away now. The next thing they notice is that their giant campfire that they set up, it's gone out. They set it to burn before going out to fish. And now it's completely burned down to coal and ashes. It didn't make sense because they had only been out on the water maybe 20 minutes 
and the logs were described as being around the thickness of a leg, maybe 10 inches or more. The next part is strange because you would think four college-age men would want to discuss what the fuck just happened because they were all so tired and feeling utterly exhausted that they just decided to go to bed and not talk about it. The next morning, the men packed their things and continued on to a new campsite and spent another six days exploring the wilderness before calling the trip over and heading home. On their way, on their way out of the waterway, they relayed their story to a park ranger, but the ranger claimed to not know of any disturbances. When the men got home, they told their experience to family and friends, but no one believed them, and they took it as the men being drunk or high and telling stories. The men started to believe that, and that maybe they just thought it was some sort of group paranoia, or they saw something, but they didn't see something, and they were kind of just hallucinating, and it wasn't real. That was until about 12 years later, when the nightmare started. Bum, bum, bum. In 1988, Jim Weiner suffered a traumatic head injury after falling down. The injury caused him to start having seizures, but he also started to experience very vivid and realistic dreams. In his dreams, Jim described seeing humanoid-shaped beings hovering over his bed and poking him with needles, along with images of the four men sitting on a bench completely naked. After describing the dreams to his wife, Jim agreed to reach out to author and famed UFO researcher Raymond Fowler. After talking with Fowler, it was suggested that the men undergo hypnosis to see if they can recall anything. The four men agreed and decided to undergo the hypnosis separately so that they do not accidentally hear each other's story and try to take on the same story. The first to go under is Jim, and during the session, he recalls being forced to strip naked and is strapped to a table. Jim is quoted as saying under hypnosis, quote, they're, they're, they don't know what to do. I think they think I'm going to come after them. I feel like I want to. I feel like I want to. The first one that comes near me, I'm going to throttle him. I don't like these things. I don't care where they came from. They shouldn't be doing this to people. Jack is next to go and describes the same events, getting naked and strapped to the table. He is said to have said, quote, they're right there. Their face is right in my face. I don't know why. I don't want to know. I don't want to know what they want. They're saying things in my head. They're saying, don't be afraid. They say, do what we say. Just don't just do what we say. Then it's Charlie's turn. Again, same story, stripped down, strapped to a table. He describes it like a doctor's office or a medical exam. He says, quote, it's like a doctor's office. I get that. It's cold, like a doctor's office is cold. They put this panel over your chest. Then they scrape your arms and your chest, your legs, your thighs. We shouldn't be here. I just, I just keep thinking, I want to go back in the canoe. Lastly, Chuck goes. He says he had a good view of what they were doing to Charlie. He says, quote, I see some sort of device on him. They've got a, this looks like a silvery, it looks like, it looks like it's got curves on it. It's almost like, like it sucks something. He's got his head tipped way back. It's almost like he's in pain where we, we, we can't help him. All we can do is watch him. So all four of these men underwent the hypnosis. And when compared to each other, they paint a picture that is pretty shockingly similar to one another. They all mentioned being chased by the light and then feeling like they were being sucked into a tube. They were then forced to strip naked and were strapped to a table. They described the humanoid creatures as tall and skinny wearing bodysuits. They have long arms as well and only four fingers. The heads they describe as large, insect-like with a beaky mouth and large, glassy eyes. The creatures poked and prodded all the men individually. They say the creatures took samples from the men, including skin, hair, urine, and semen. When the men were not being prodded, 
They were in a trance-like state sitting on a bench waiting to be moved to the table. Then when it was all over, they were walked to a type of portal and they felt the sensation of being lowered and eventually found themselves back in the canoe and then by the campfire, which is where their original memories pick up. So after such a crazy experience, what else is there to do than try to corroborate your story, right? And what is the most 80s way of doing that? With a lie detector test, baby. Now remember, it wasn't until 1996 that polygraph tests were ruled inadmissible in court due to the unreliable nature of the test. So in 1988, this is a legit way to prove yourself. To me, I think they just have the wrong people running the test nowadays. We need the dude that does it for Mari and... You know, they always get those right. Those results are never wrong. Am I right? They can't be. They can't be. Everyone, you know, you are not the father. Anywho, <laughs> um, the four men take a lie detector test and they all pass. In 1993, that same UFO researcher that they reached out to, Raymond Fowler, publishes a book called The Allagash Abductions. And the four men start going on talk shows and TV programs to tell their story. Their big break came when the story was featured on this little known show called Unsolved Mysteries. This is around the time that one of the men, Chuck Rack, begins to think it might be time to cash in on all this fame. Jim recalls in an interview later that he and Charlie went to visit Jack and his wife in Vermont, and it was then that Chuck arrived at the house and said he had a plan to make some money. He proposed that the four men contradict what Fowler said in the book and publicly say that the professionals surrounding this case handled it poorly and thus creating some sort of controversy. The other three men refused to participate and questioned Chuck's ethics and morals after this. They said that they refused to talk to Chuck about it again, but they still agreed to go and appear on some TV shows to talk about the incident after this. Chuck then told the other men that he was going to go through with his plan and they all agreed to sever all contact with Chuck. Chuck then went on to say that it was all made up and that the men were telling stories. When pressed by reporters and news investigators, he did claim that the lights were real that it really happened, but the whole abduction was just their way of trying to make money. Now, Jim, Jack, and Charlie have all publicly denounced Chuck and stand by their story and claim this to be true. So do, of course, do the professionals surrounding the case. Fowler has a book about the incident, and the hypnotherapist and polygraph administrator have careers and reputations to a hold. It all boils down to what do you want to believe. Chuck himself says he believes in alien abductions, but he does not believe it happened to them. Ironically, he's gone on record to say that he was visited by an alien figure in his room as a little boy. Jim and Jack, the twins, have a story about being visited by an alien that they named Harry the Ghost when they were little boys. Jack also claims to have seen UFOs multiple times with his wife while driving around the backwoods of Vermont. So who are we supposed to believe? The three men and their professionals who claim it to be real? Or the one man who changed the story late in the game? Well, psychologist Dr. John Mack believes the men and points to the shared experience that was recalled separately as proof that it was not some sort of shared group paranoia. On the other end, Dr. William Cole, another psychologist, points to the very familiar description of the alien creatures to that of many TV shows and movies. He claims that they had a preconceived notion of what an alien would look like, and their minds created this image under hypnosis. To me, I tend to side with the believers as opposed to the non-believers. Yes, the story sounds very familiar, but I do not discount the fact that they all recalled the experience in such a similar way. And even Chuck claims that they saw what he thinks to be an alien craft, but says the other part is all bullshit. It doesn't add up to me. Finally, I will leave you with something that Jack said in an interview. He said, quote, one day someone will come forward with physical evidence and people will believe that there's really something out there. They'll, then they'll know that those Allagash guys weren't crazy at all. 
and I tend to believe him. Somewhere, someone somewhere is going to come home with some literal alien DNA on a shirt or a dress or something, and we will have proof that aliens are real. Until then, we will just have to continue staring at our I want to believe posters and whispering to ourselves, the truth is out there. And that, my bearded friends, is the story of the Allagash abductions. Awesome, man. I just want to say it's a bit of a dick move by their friend who went rogue. Yeah, and it, <laughs> he did an interview in 2016 and then again in 2018, like doubling down on saying it was all bullshit and that they all made it up just to get money. And the other three guys always point out that they never did a book deal. They never did a movie. They never gave TV rights. They've never once tried to cash in on the incident. It's just this guy, Chuck, saying, oh, no, they're doing it for the money. But they really, in turn, they didn't get maybe between the four of them, they had like somewhere around like $100,000 when the incident first came out because they did like the TV circuit and they did um, like some newspaper interviews. Yeah, it's, it's those are great ways to make some pocket cash, but you're not going to. Exactly. Yeah, you can't live off that stuff. You know <laughs> no. what I mean? And like one of the guys as a professor at the school, the College of Arts now, it's like they have lives and reputations that like they could have, you know, sold the rights to this and made a bunch of money but they didn't uh and they stuck to that and as someone who has actually gone under hypnosis and recalled things that i thought were like i didn't really have memories of but like i knew happened but like i repressed the memories so long ago like having that come up is like i believe that's like i mean like it's legit that that level of hypnosis can have i don't think you can be hypnotized to like bark like a dog your whole life but i think you can recall those memories with a trained hypnotherapist and yeah it's as, crazy. as somebody who does hip, hypnosis I, I practice hypnosis it's yeah. a very interesting thing that what you can recall and how deep you mm. can go the subconscious is like a sponge and it just absorbs mm -hmm. everything yeah and you know how they were talking about you know, but maybe one day somebody will come out with DNA and, you know, be able to prove this whole thing. Mm. What's interesting about abductees is you take the Betty and Barney Hill case, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is the first big American um, abduction story. They came back with weird chemicals on this, on their clothing yep. that mm -hmm. they couldn't explain that scientists try to identify it. And it was not something of this earth. And that's mysteriously mm. vanished since. So I think there could be something to it. it, it you know, and this situation kind of reminds me of the group of men from fire in the sky. Yeah. The lumberjack. I was going to cover that too. And I I'm terrified of that movie and I don't want to cover the story, <laughs> but yeah, very similar. Yep. Uh, they had the same thing where one guy's like, it's all BS. And then he would change the story. Like, no, nah, it's like legit. And then he's like, no, nah, they're all liars. But he was also the problem guy in the group to begin with. And he was also exactly, one yeah. of the only people who I think passed his light detector, yeah. which was weird. <laughs> yeah. Very strange. But yeah, that was, that was my, uh, subconsciously written script. <laughs> <laughs> it was meant to be, you were supposed to put that one out there. Exactly. Yeah. So to quote Robert Stack from, uh, sightings, if you or somebody, you know, has experienced anything mm -hmm. like this, please reach out, let us know. We would love to ask you some questions and, if you don't want it to be public, we won't share it. We're just very curious about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, also, I really miss the show sightings. There's, and I think Robert Stuck was Unsolved Mysteries, but I yeah. they were both such amazing shows. They were very good. I and loved it. Unsolved Mysteries is back on Netflix. Not a yeah, sponsor. It's actually it's really good. Yeah. I like I, I watched it. It's the second season or the second collection, whatever they're calling it, isn't as good as the first one, but it's still good. It's still very, very good. Yeah. Yeah. So awesome. If somebody wanted to write in and send us a, a message, uh, you guys suck, 
or do they have something for banter with the beardsleys where could they do that yeah please do if you have any of that stuff we'll take constructive feedback just as much as positive feedback uh, but you can do that by reaching out to any of our social medias. Our Instagram is uh, at Bearded Things Pod. Our Facebook is facebook.com slash Bearded Things. We also have a Bearded Friends group on Facebook, which is called the Bearded Things Bearded Friends group. Uh, you can find that just by searching it in the group tab. On Twitter, we are at Bearded Things. And YouTube, we are at Bearded Things Pod. You can also email us at contact us at beardedthings.com. Or go to our website, beardedthings.com, and hit the little contact page and submit a story to us via that way. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that concludes our session for this week. We will talk to you guys next week. Bye.